This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Detection at Scale. Today I'm here with Chris Hodson, who is the CISO at Contentful. Prior to Contentful, he was at Zscaler and Tanium and a bunch of other great places. And he also has a book on cyber risk management. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Jack. Good to be here. So before we hit record, uh, I was thinking about this question of what's your hottest security take? Uh, hottest security take? I'm not sure if this is particularly hot or potentially unpopular, but you know, there's lots of talk in our industry around the technical needs of a CISO and does a CISO need to be technical? And just from my experience, I've kind of found that the best boardroom CISOs, the ones who are able to articulate risk in a way that resonates with non-security folk, actually have kind of a fairly detailed understanding of the esoteric aspects of that, be it an incident, be it like an architectural challenge. So when I hear people say, and sometimes I think it's for mouse clicks and for conference talks, but I hear them say, CSOs don't need to be technical. And I think I did write this in the book or somewhere. I don't know many CFOs who say they don't know about finance. So apologies, non-technical CSOs, and I don't want lots of comments on your iTunes, but I don't know. Off the top of my head, that would be one, I would say, yeah. Where do you think that dichotomy comes from? I think it comes from kind of roles prior to being a CISO, right? And, you know, I also want to say that I do know some non-technical CISOs who have great teams, I should say, who are technical and, you know, you know, kind of bridge some of those gaps or cracks maybe. But, you know, if you think about the role of the security function, right, you kind of have two paths that I've seen them. You have kind of the CISO who's come from a very technical background, maybe systems engineering, maybe they've been a security architect and kind of cut their cloth that way and or cut their teeth off it and then um, kind of moved into the security exec role. I see other CISOs generally, generally happens in larger organizations who, you know, the individual has a very strong kind of cross-functional business reputation. They've executed well in maybe finance or in the people team or in legal quite a lot of the time. They then move into security because they kind of have that gravitas within the organization that helps them succeed there. So like I said, I've seen some great CISOs who've done that but most of them have gone through the process of learning the technical side of it. I assume on the spectrum, you're on the technical side, just given your background. So how did you start sort of learning the skills that you know, would better enable you as a technical CISO? I think what helped me was I spent a long time as a consultant or a contractor. So when you talk about cross-functional business engagement, when you talk about kind of skills for particular industry verticals, Doing that and working for lots of different organizations, I think, allowed me to deal with lots of different types of people in specific roles. I was in financial services during the time when every job description said, must have five years of experience in financial services. And, you know, you're getting into that and you think, why is that? And uh, at the time, I think FS was the first place that really started to care about InfoSec and, and Cyber. And, you know, it was almost that vicious circle of, well, how do I get the experience if I can't? And, uh, I was lucky enough to start with um, a few kind of retail banks in the UK as a security architect. 
woefully underqualified, like genuinely like had good security skills as like an engineer, but getting that more kind of macro or abstracted high level view of the world was something I learned a lot of on the job. But in doing that, I think that kind of gave me the grounding to kind of start to look at leading security functions. And I took that kind of transition from security architect, senior security architect to kind of security management and then, yeah, running the show in, so to speak. That's a good segue into where we are today. So we've come a long way from protecting the the more monolithic infrastructures that have servers that you physically rack and now we're cloud-based, AWS, GCP, Azure, like all of that. How do you think the mentality around detection has shifted from the days that you were just starting in financial services to now? I'm going to try and answer this without using the phrase cattle versus pets. But um, I think certainly when you were back in the old days or racking and stacking servers, data centers, like all your security infrastructure was also in those data centers and you had full control of kind of dedicated environments. I see now with kind of cloud, SaaS-based, IaaS, PaaS, containers, EKS, whatever it is, there's just so much telemetry and there just aren't the opportunities for just dumping agents everywhere. I think that's the the biggest change. You had, you know, racked and stacked servers and everyone was fine with deploying all these things that ran on them because, hey, what's a few CPU cycles? What's a bit of memory on a, you know, a Windows, whatever it is, 2008 server? You look now, I mean, take my current environment, this is public knowledge, like, you know, we are kind of a headless API content-based platform and we run on microservices. You know, you look at detection and response, you can't go dropping agents on very small footprint containers that are spun up and orchestrated by a case. So, you know, looking at other ways of doing that, looking at passive ways of gathering as much information as possible. And I think also working a lot more closely with the DevOps teams, like understanding how things are supposed to be built, understanding the technical architecture to then build detections for kind of very cloud native challenges that, that possibly we didn't have in our bare metal, well, in our physical world, in our data centers. That's how I look at it. Security being much closer to the engineering and development teams and understanding, I suppose, not only the infrastructure, but also application logic as well when we're building out detections. Mm. So how does the team get smart about what to detect? That's a great question. Threat modeling, I think threat modeling, and that may be a trite answer. You may have heard that like kind of 50 or 60 times, but, you know, actually understanding from an internal perspective how things are supposed to work, understanding data flows, understanding all the intermediary steps on a process, I think kind of helps us. Staying abreast of what's going on in the industry, I think as well, by threat intelligence, industry forums and groups. We leverage a managed service for our 24 by 7 SecOps, and we have detections that we consume via them. Again, we are an organization the entire organization, I don't just need security of roughly a thousand people. You know, I don't have the resources to have 20 people who are looking at SecOps and then five others doing detections engineering. So taking intel, taking detections from MSSP and also leveraging kind of the threat intel from, you know, other security solutions that we have, be them endpoint AV, be them kind of email gateways that we deploy. So trying to get as broad a detections picture as possible, like from identity all the way through to what we're provisioning in, for example, Kubernetes, I think. An area I've always found really interesting is application logging. So you talked about Kubernetes a few times, you talked about the security teams sitting with the engineers. How do you work well together with application developers to get important data that's useful for security? Because oftentimes, app logs are just like total garbage. How do yeah. we make that not the case? 
again, another good question. Getting involved really early in the life cycle, understanding kind of the requirements of the development and the product teams and building out that very early, even if it's just like a product requirements document. So you understand very early on, we're trying to do this thing. There's a discovery phase of, of an application and getting to know it as it's built. I know that sounds a very kind of fundamental or macro, but if you have a logic and you have an understanding of what's being built, once it has been built, it's then much easier to be able to establish what's supposed to be happening and what isn't. There's no way that you can consume, to your point, all application logs and build signal from noise necessarily. But if you understand the sensitive data assets that an application is storing or processing, if you understand particular user accounts and particular repos that are of concern, kind of having detections that fire on those rather than just trying to look for a needle in a haystack. I haven't got the silver bullet. Like I don't know the way. I have been in lots of organizations who have had this problem of building web apps, then building applications, and then, you know, just having a deluge of data. But um, yeah, just working very closely with devs and, and regularly and understanding a little bit more about how things are constructed, I think. So you said you would pick out specific services and repos, right? I assume in microservice architectures, you have like separate GitHub repos for yeah. what you're using for version control. That makes a lot of sense. So I think that's actually a good lesson to take away, right? It's like prioritize the services that are the most sensitive. So things that are touching customer data, things that are touching anything sensitive, like pay attention to those the most. The thing I'm always curious about is like, what signal do you care about when it comes to the application doing things? I was going to say things that it's not supposed to. That's incredibly, incredibly obvious. But, you know, if you're building out those detections of misuse cases, so again, well, you know, giving away secret source or anything, kind of looking at, and the things that we know applications are supposed to do, and then building out almost like capture the flag style scenarios of things that aren't supposed to happen from a front end perspective, mm-hmm. and then building detections on those from the back end. So when we're looking at security assurance, that's certainly something that we consider, like misuse cases, like what isn't supposed to happen with this application? Like how could someone steal a session token in transit? Like if someone gets access to this database, then what would be the worst thing they could do? Could they drop it completely? Could they exfil data? Mm-hmm trying to build out detections that way and make them contextual to the application because, yeah, you know, something that works for one piece of your environment wouldn't necessarily work for another, I think. Yeah, that's a good point around understanding those access points. Like if an attacker is able to, through the web application, access and proxy to something else, like do we have eyes on that? I think that's an important piece. Well, I think that's where, so in our organization, business resilience sits under kind of the security organization as well so something we try and do is look at things from a and you may have heard this before but start with your business processes and then from your business so this has nothing to do with applications or technology but start from your business processes finance wants to do a thing look at the applications that support that process then look at the infrastructure that supports that application and then look at the data flows that's kind of a program of work we're doing at the moment so when someone says this information here is confidential quote unquote great, okay, you know, it sits in that file store, but where is it actually being transferred from and to? How are things getting deleted? Who has access to it? How are you doing RBAC? And having that end-to-end view allows you to build a much more, I suppose, holistic threat model rather than just, I mean, that's one of my pet peeves. You asked me earlier, you know, hot take, thought of another one now is, you know, like pen testing an individual application, running a ton of automated scans and saying, you know, here's a ton of vulnerabilities, as opposed to saying, I want to see if you can access those particular credentials or that SSH key in that environment. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, we're building out a much, I don't want to say holistic again, but, you know, a much broader view of 
what's critical and what's important to our organization rather than just picking individual systems on a chain, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like your point too around it's not just about the list of vulnerabilities because you could have millions of those, right? It could be like, yeah. oh, you're on, on an outdated OS. It's like, okay, who cares? Yeah. Like, is it actually 100%. a problem? Or is it just like some information low severity finding that doesn't really become actionable? But that's a good take. Completely. And another challenge with that approach is even if you understand the severity and the impact, it's still not a risk. You know, it's something that's mm-hmm. just point time. It's kind of abstract of any business impact. So getting anyone outside of the security function to remediate or change their approach to remove it, it's very difficult, I think, in that way. So mm-hmm. yeah, risk is a really interesting idea, even in detection, because I think we're shifting from this world of we got one atomic alert to now we're looking at things in aggregate. How do you think about risk when it comes to observing your environment? Again, I think it's having the right visibility of essentially everything that matters. Now, that might sound like a political response to that, but you know, if you don't have ingestion of the right telemetry into your SIM, into your MSSP solution, to be able to respond to things that matter, then you know, you're going to have a myopic view of potential incidents, right? So I see a lot of companies fail in that regard of, hey, you know, they might have their email and collaboration tool logs being sent to a SIM, but for some reason they don't have their Okta logs, for example, or they're not having their kind of AV logs. So being able to build out a picture of kind of, I suppose, I don't want to say kill chain today, the tool jet, but, you know, an end-to-end incident is critically important. And that's something that we've spent a lot of time doing is thinking, right, okay, so we're building out a number of tools at the moment internally, both on our corporate side and on our kind of production side, and making sure that all of those tools can send relevant telemetry to a centralized source and allow us to build detections or to have our third parties build detections is important. So when you think about risk, I think it's about identifying the systems that can help us in the event of an incident. Now, I wouldn't say that that's not how I would explain risk to my audit committee, but that's how I would explain risk from a detection. <laughs> detections here. We're not talking about kind of sims and, and what we're doing with Splunk. But um, yeah, I think that's the critically important thing. If it gives us visibility that allows us to respond to something, then from a risk perspective, that's what we want to make sure that we have the signal from, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned building tools. Can you briefly describe? I mean, you don't have to give me anything specific, but I'm curious, like, I don't know, it's often not recommended to build things, but like, there's obviously good reasons when things are very custom. So I'm always curious, like, why, what are you building? Like, can you describe what it is? And if it's a reaction to a bad commercial tool versus (laughs) being very custom, you know? I was going to say that would be great content for you, Jack. No, we have a program of work where we're building a security program. Like, I'll be perfectly honest with you, there is nothing that I can possibly, if you kind of Python automation scripts, but there's nothing whereby we have said, right, an off-the-shelf product or service isn't fit for purpose for our organization. So, Jay, I'm not backtracking. We genuinely haven't gone, right, okay, I don't know, this whatever EDR tool doesn't work for us. So, hey, we're going to build it. No, we haven't done that. We're certainly SaaS first. I will say, you know, we want to be in a position where from a security tooling, we are not building our own infrastructure tools or security tools and and owning them. So if we can go direct to internet, then that's the approach that we would take. And most CISOs I speak with are kind of that way now, you know, build a SaaS security standard. So say, hey, it must integrate with MFA. Hey, we must be able to send the logs to somewhere from a, you know, for detection and response. But um, yeah. Unfortunately, no, we're not building very much from a tooling perspective anyway. I actually really love that point you just said. So the tools that we're integrating with now as security teams have to be the SaaS-minded. They have to have MFA. They have to send their logs somewhere. They probably also need to have a few other things like SSO support, et cetera, et cetera. 
do you see that as fairly ubiquitous today or do you see it as like we still need to do better as vendors I think it's ubiquitous. I think that that's the case. I think the kind of industry, I'm going to say paradigm change later, you know, have kind of driven everyone to this zero trust model, this like eradication of a local area network where you mentioned it earlier. Hey, we're not in data centers anymore. We're not racking and stacking stuff. So if we can go directly out to the internet, it was just a ton more flexibility in kind of where people work, how they work, devices that they use you know, removal of VPNs in, you know, 90% of cases. So it's fairly ubiquitous. The biggest challenge that comes from it, obviously, is application sprawl. Like if someone doesn't need to go and talk to security or IT and can just go, hey, we're just going to get a credit card out and buy access to an application. It's difficult to kind of know about that. But from our side of things, I go through a fairly kind of rigorous process of onboarding vendors. And yeah, the few that I mentioned there were just, I suppose, a cross-section of the questions that we ask and the requirements we have for, for tooling. Mm-hmm. And you- you said that your team is building stuff internally. So can I imply that they're engineers? Or like, how do you describe the breakdown of your team? Yeah, no, good question. So we have a security team that spans all of the organization. So we have dedicated product resources, which I don't think is uncommon in a technology organization. So working very closely with our product teams, we align like with the Kubernetes 4Cs. I think that's something that resonates quite well with people inside and outside of security of saying, looking after your kind of code, your containers, your clusters, and your cloud. And that's a dedicated team in my organization who do that, and that's great. And then we have a broader kind of wider enterprise security team who look after the services that everyone in the organization uses. So identity, security operations, vulnerable management, they all fall under another team. But, you know, if you're, and I think this is true, I'd love you, actually, I'll interview you, you'll be on this, but, you know, tech companies, are moving to kind of DevOps models or have had DevOps models for a number of years, security has to move with the times and be embedded with those teams. So if your engineering team are writing everything because infrastructure is code, security needs to be doing the same. We need to be conversant in the tools they're using. We need to understand Terraform. We need to be able to write security templates to be able to qualify if things have vulnerabilities and misconfigurations in them. All of that stuff, generally engineers. So there'll be occasions where we'll have analysts from a SecOps perspective, but the bulk of people who can add value at the moment sit in the kind of more of a security engineering space. Something I would say I'm seeing more often something that when I look for candidates, we certainly find very attractive is having that blend. So I think maybe five years ago, you would look for either an AppSec engineer or an infrastructure engineer in the sense of you'd have those more kind of end-tiered architectures, right? You could have somebody looking at app and then another team looking at kind of the infrastructure. With all things microservices, I feel was kind of a convergence of those things. So, you know, I suppose that brings you to that true sort of DevSecOps, doesn't it? People who have an understanding of how to build the infrastructure side, or where now largely it is Terraform or whatever AWS is, is was it CloudFormation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure I answered any question. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like it's <laughs> you. Of course you do. I like the Kubernetes 4Cs. I've actually never heard of that because I've never intimately uh, with Kubernetes, but. Yeah, I can't necessarily take, I don't know if uh, security engineering manager is going to hear this, but yeah, we, we jammed on the best way to explain what we did. Because I think security is, like I said earlier, it's esoteric, it's confusing to people. Hey, you're a security engineer, but you're not working in the product space. Or hey, you're an architect. So by defining the four Cs, certainly when you look at teams who work in technology, everyone understands code. Like code in its many different forms, if it's infrastructure or app, still mm. code. Clusters, maybe everyone doesn't understand clusters, but you know, if you work in a microservices Kubernetes environment, you do. 
And then containers and cloud are, are fairly ubiquitous and, and synonymous with microservices. So yeah, yeah. that's my takeaway for everyone today. Yeah. Yeah. I love the point about security becoming enabling in a cross-functional sense. And we see this actually in product teams too. Because now even at Panther, like we have teams that are EPD teams. So it's engineering and product. So you have like front end, back end, you have engineering managers, PMs, designers, all sort of working in one unit. And it's interesting to think about that same cross-functional team as a security with a security mindset of security engineers sit with the DevOps engineers to make sure that we're writing Terraform in a way that's secure. Or if we identify a certain standard that we will want to hold, we're working with the teams to educate them on that. So I think that's a really cool evolution of where we are today. Well, thank you. No one's ever complete, I don't think. And there's iterations as to how you do that. I don't know, advocacy or training or kind of close way of working. But yeah, we're making some real progress there. So when you look at kind of vulnerabilities, when you look at, you know, everyone uses Jira, when you look at Jira cards, we're really trying to make sure now that when we put something in a queue, well, we don't, <laughs> we actually don't do that. So I was going to say when we put something in an engineering queue, but now what we're trying to do is work with more of the engineers, more developers to say, this is something that we have found. This is a defect. This is a vulnerability in this configuration. How should we contextualize this so that it gets the kind of the necessary prioritization in your queues? Because I see too many, you know, I speak with lots of friends of mine who are CISOs. They all have the same tools. They all pump out lots of traffic light style, red, amber, greens, or CVE scores or whatever it is. But they don't mean a lot to kind of development teams who have their own things to do. You know, they have their own OKRs, they have their own deadlines, they have their own sprints that often have very little to do with security. So getting things explained in a way that resonates, however trite that sounds again, is uh, yeah, something we've been spending a ton of time on. Yeah, it's so non-trivial as well. It's just yeah. security is a very different mindset. It's like DevOps. Even DevOps yeah. is a very different mindset from just core software engineering. So yeah. it is very helpful to have those trusted partners. And I'm thinking about right now, like how much, how far the way do tools get us in that versus needing a human always? And I think you could apply that question to like detection and AppSec and cloud security and things like that. Like, how do you see that balance is like tools are getting us X of the percent of the way there versus like the humans take us to the last like mile or whatever? Yeah, I think they've come a long way. I'm sure you knew I was going to say that, but I think, you know, getting environmental context, getting prioritization of the stuff that a company should focus on because it isn't always the highest CBSS score. You know, that's, I'm sure I'm preaching and converted on that, but, you know, tools have come a long way in terms of saying, hey, this particular endpoint over here, it's not rootless and it's exposed to the internet and it's, you know, looking after payment information. Consequently, even kind of medium level vulnerabilities or misconfigurations here are more important and should be prioritized over, let's say, I don't know, CBSS 9.1 over here on the canteen restaurant menu. You know, so I think tools are helping a lot with that. Where tools I don't think necessarily go everywhere, or I think you said the last mile, I think the last mile or probably the last kind of five kilometers from an engineer's perspective is, is much more around just looking at how you can group multiple alerts or multiple instances or multiple vulnerabilities into kind of categories rather than just these individual things that that fire. And that for me is where you can work with engineers and developers on fixing things at source, you know, looking at the cause rather than the symptom. And I won't go into specific tool names here, but you know, lots of tools. You I've seen tools that will give you 
200 instances of a misconfiguration in a container, for example. And I've seen security teams run off and, you know, go and try and fix 200 instances of this problem and raise lots of tickets of eng when in fact you could change a line of a configuration of, uh, you know, Docker file and it would fix it once, then have that rebuilt. So tools, I don't think get you all the way with that level of kind of pragmatism and yeah, let's just call it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are tools out there that literally make most kind of engineers and analysts obsolete, but I haven't, I haven't found one yet. Yeah. There's, there's always an opportunity, I think, for tools to get more contextual. Yeah. Or to enable the team to make it easily contextual. And what I mean by that is like, if you think of detection as this like very broad funnel, so you have the superset of all possible things that could go wrong. Like if you look at MITRE ATT&CK, right? Like the entire yeah. matrix. And then it gets a little bit more specific. You're like, okay, well, in my environment, we're just using AWS, let's say, or we're just using GCP. It's okay. Now it shrinks a little. And then it's like, um, and we're actually only using Kubernetes or we're only using serverless or whatever, and it shrinks a little bit more. That sort of adaptability should definitely be easy and trivial in tools. So then we're really focusing on really the only like 10% of that last chunk where a human actually needs to get involved. And I think that's probably how we evolve as a security community and not needing to always rely on like external services like MSSPs. And because I think that's really just like a staffing thing, but also like an enablement thing based on the tools. So I think we can get better about being just customized, making it tailored, but easy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think certainly if you look at like CIS benchmarks and the like, for example, NIST standards, you know, knowing which parts of those are most relevant, that goes to detection as well as kind of like configuration management, right? Like understanding which of those areas are most important for your app and which don't apply. Yeah, going through that exercise. I think that's why a lot of companies don't take these kind of standards off the shelf and do kind of tailor and curate and add bits of one to another because, yeah, they don't always apply without doing so. Awesome. Chris, this has been really fun. Um, I want to wrap up with one final question. And I'd just like to end with takeaways that people can sort of walk away with and hopefully bring it back to their security team and, and continue pushing forward in the right direction. And so what are three pieces of advice that you would give to detection teams who are living in this cloud-based world? I would say, firstly, we touched on visibility, but you know, ensuring that you are able to have telemetry from the various stages of an attack path. So think about the different solutions in your environment that allow you to do that. You know, if you use a SIM or you're using a SIM and an MSSP, you know, are you in a position to be able to take something from kind of the left-hand side of an attack path to the right-hand side? So do you have identity? Do you have infrastructure logs? Do you have application logs? Do you have logs from your AV and your EDR solution? And if you do, do you actually know what those pieces of telemetry, the information from those that will allow you to effectively kind of triage and respond to an incident? So, so think about that. I suppose stay curious as well. And we talked about kind of my career path before, but, you know, technology changes so quickly. I got into security in the world of well, like Windows 2000 and MCSEs and, and whatnot. And you think about the skills that I learned there and are they relevant today? Largely, <laughs> largely not, right? So... I would say for anyone in the industry that, you know, to stay on top of of technology changes and paradigm shifts. And I suppose thirdly, and we touched on this as well, but, you know, keep a close working relationship with whatever's kind of producing your product. So in my world, it's engineering and product teams. 
you know, in an automotive organization, it would be manufacturing of cars and the systems to support that. But when you start to think about the why of a cyber intrusion, you know, invariably people are looking for kind of crown jewels, assets, things that they can sell, et cetera. So knowing what those are in your business, I think, I think sometimes we get a little bit too self-assured on that. We think, right, we know what's important. It's AD databases. It's SSH keys over here. When in fact, a lot of the time there's intellectual property that you need to build detections around. So I don't know if that's three. I think that was three, but they were kind of um, three. a few things. There you go. They would kind of be a few things that I would, I would focus on definitely. Awesome, Chris. This has been super fun and honestly, very, very insightful. I think the things we talked about today were, were really useful and I hope people listening in got a lot of, uh, a lot of value from that and learned a little bit more about how you're thinking about detection in such a cloud native first environment like, uh, Brilliant. thanks very much, Jack. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.